Uh, thank you for that. Uh-huh. Now you can hear me. We're going to be reading Romans 9, the first several verses, and then we'll uh, skip down a little bit. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, you can just listen. Romans 9. This is Paul talking. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them according to the flesh comes the Messiah, who is over all, God blessed and forever. Amen. And then we're going to skip down a little bit to verse... Uh, 14. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to hold that for a second. Paul is upset. And that is unusual. Maybe you haven't read the New Testament enough to know exactly what I mean by that. Uh, We have a lot of Paul's letters that he wrote to the church. This is one of those letters. And in pretty much every one of those letters, he'll say something along the lines of, life is hard, but God is good. So I'm all right. I am pressed, but not crushed, he'll say. Persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I am blessed. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. He will say stuff like that while rotting in a Roman prison. He will get beaten within an inch of his life and then write something in a letter like, I just want you guys to know, my suffering is serving to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. Paul is unshakable. Paul is never sad, never upset. He is never bummed out in any of his letters except when he is talking about people who don't know Jesus. And then all of a sudden, his head hangs, and his eyes fill with tears, and his voice starts to crack and shake, because it's breaking his heart. He starts off chapter 9 with a solemn vow, an oath to God, so that we will pay attention. I swear to God, I am not lying. I am extremely upset, Paul says. Not, I'm sad, not life is hard, but he starts using unnecessary adjectives. I have great sorrow, or extreme sorrow. I have an anguish that doesn't stop. It doesn't go away. I can't stop thinking about it. All the time, it's just, it's driving me crazy. It's killing me. That my people, whom I love, do not know Jesus. And that's instructive for us. I think uh, if we were to walk outside right now and talk to the average non-Christian and ask, what do the Christians think of the non-Christians? Somewhere in there, they would say something like, well, and they think we're going to hell. Which is a message that I, I don't know that that's the one thing we want people to know. Um, in fact, it's, it's really hard, actually, that, the, that it's not an invitation to salvation that's out there, but almost like an expectation of damnation. And to be fair, that's not every Christian. There's some really obnoxious ones that are really loud on TV. But I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of us live our lives as though it just doesn't matter. 
It just doesn't matter that people are lost. It just doesn't matter. They don't matter. And it doesn't really bother us, and it doesn't really break our heart most of the time. And it should. It should kill us the way it kills Paul. Paul is deeply, deeply grieved. And we should be too. We should be looking at the world, actually, and thinking about the darkness and despair that is all around us. That's part of the message of Christmas. I would love to see a claymation reindeer talk about that. Um, that the world is dark and hopeless, um, in dire need of salvation. Uh, that, would be, that would be great. The world around us believes that the message of Christmas is that people should be nice to each other, and that every now and again we should lay down our differences, and we should sit down and have a meal and be generous, maybe to strangers. And that is a good message. That's a great message. I'm not slamming that message. It just has very little to do with the actual message of Christmas. Because the actual message of Christmas is that a light has come into the world. A dark, dreary world that we were desperate for hope and that we still are desperate for hope for the people that we love. And our only hope is Jesus. And Paul thinks that, but it is remarkable to, to hear the number of scholars and pastors who will write about Romans, and particularly this, pastor, this passage of Romans, and they'll start talking about the Jews in general or in theory. Uh, these people are not a theory for Paul. And that's not to say there's not great theological thinking in the book of Romans. There is. It is remarkable and deep. And at some level, Paul is probably talking about the, the trouble he has um, with the fact that his own people aren't accepting the Messiah, and he doesn't know what to do with that. Paul deals with godless barbarians all the time. Non-Jews. Those are the godless barbarians. That's you and me. And Paul would say, these, these just miserable idiots, somehow when they see Jesus, when they understand that the God of Israel loves them, it, it, it makes a huge impact on their lives. But my own people, for some reason, it's just, it's not, it's not happening. And you and I, we tend to think of Judaism as a religion and the Jews as a group of people distinct from Christians. And no one in this book would ever think that. Uh, the people in this book would say that the Jews are God's favorite people and that Christians and Jews are the same thing, um, that one of us has found the Messiah and that another group of people has missed it for some reason or another. And Paul is wrestling with that. And he doesn't quite know what to do with that. But again, these people are not a theory for him. They are not faceless. They are not nameless. He loves these people. He's thinking about aunts and uncles and cousins and their children. Uh, my own people according to the flesh. That's the end of verse 3. Uh, Sungenon is the word in Greek. So it's, these are my tribe, but also my relatives. These are my, my people, my generation. He's thinking of friends he grew up with. He's thinking of Pharisees he still keeps in touch with, and their wives and their children, the fact that they eat dinner together, and he gets invited over for Shabbat meals, and, and they talk about all sorts of things. But for some reason, they just... They're not on board with the Messiah, and it's, it's just breaking his heart. If you can talk about the lost, people who don't know Jesus, and we would say lost in every sense of that word, but if you can talk about the lost and not get upset, if you can talk about the lost and not picture somebody you know and you love, then something is wrong. Because as long as these people are just, you know, people out there who we don't invite over for dinner and who we don't have drinks with after work and 
who we don't let our kids play with and who at some level they don't live on our block and they're not in our building. These people just don't matter to us. Well, then we have no problem. But the instant you start to care about these people, the instant they are invited deeply into your life, you love them, you will soak your sheets with tears. And you will be furious with any Christian who would ever casually talk about hell. It'll drive you insane, and you'll be on your knees all of the time, begging God, praying to God, knowing that he needs to do something amazing and miraculous in the lives of the people that you love so that they might come to know him, in our city, so that it might come to know him. And if you aren't thinking of people right now, if you're not getting upset right now, then it is possible that there is no lost person that you love. And that is a problem. Or that you think Jesus is not that big a deal. And that is a problem. I called a friend of mine named Sam this week. Because Sam is really good at, at loving um, some really lost people in his life. He's sort of surrounded by lost people. And he really cares about them. And I thought, I don't, I just, I need to get inside Sam's head and his heart. And so I called him up and uh, I left a message. It was like, I'm going to leave, I'm going to ask you some really, really personal questions. Uh, and maybe talk about it to a room full of people. How do you feel about that? And he said, that's okay. Um, and we talked about his friends and his neighbors um, who've lost some people recently. And, and they've been going to a medium for advice. And he's like, it's just really dark and hard to know how to be in these relationships. And we were talking about his dad. And his dad's an alcoholic. He's trying to kill himself with alcohol, which is not an interpretation. And Sam has actually talked to his dad, and his dad has said, I'm not willing to do life without booze. Um, I know it's going to kill me, and I'm looking forward to the day. And my friend played me voicemails, because I asked him, what, what, what do you think about hope in the midst of this situation? He said, I want you to listen to despair, and I want you to listen to hope. He played me voicemails of his dad drunk dialing him, and his dad calling him sober. And then we talked about his brother, and his brother's on much the same path. And his brother came home from a couple of wars with a lot of issues, and uh, got married. And on the day he got married, he beat his wife, and he got arrested for beating his wife. And Sam talked to his, his wife and said, you know, you, you really need to get out of this. Run. I mean, he's just, he's really lost. There's some real things that need to change and to happen in his life, but she's really lost too, and so she stayed. My friends, it is, it is one of the hardest things in the world, man. It's not like we don't talk about Jesus. It's not like we don't talk about significant things. It's not like I'm not talking about how, how some real changes need to happen in their life. I feel like I'm shouting into a pit directions on how to get out, and people are saying, no, 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 we like the dark. It's like I'm offering people a beautiful, delicious piece of chocolate cake. They could live their life eating this thing. It could be rich, it could be indulgent, it could be delicious all the time. And they have chosen to drink muddy water. And I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. I don't know why they won't believe me. I don't know why they don't see that life can be better than this, bigger than this, deeper than this. And we talked about hope. And how we can't find hope in their recovery. Because even if that happens, it can always go away. And his only hope for the people that he loves is Jesus. He's banking on that. Paul says, I wish that I was accursed. That's verse 3. I wish that I could be cursed away from Christ if it would save other people. I wish I could trade places with these people to save them. I would do that. Which is an amazing thing if you know Paul really well. You know what he thinks he's found in Jesus. 
He's not casual about the idea of giving that up. I wish I could switch with them, he says. And some of you in this room, I think, do have some lost people that you love, and you have talked at great length about Jesus, and it is killing you. And you absolutely know what Paul is talking about. You absolutely know how my friend Sam feels. And you go, yeah, maybe I would trade places. Maybe I would do that. But the beautiful good news of this is that you don't have to trade places with these people. That God has already done that in Jesus. This is something Paul already knows. That this is already something offered. That there is actually hope in Jesus Christ. See, I think that Christmas can't come soon enough for my friend Sam. I think it can't come soon enough for his family. I think it can't come soon enough for all of his friends and his neighbors and his sister-in-law and his brother. And that's my interpretation, not his. But when I talk about Christmas in that moment, I'm not talking about, you know, that the day would be really nice. I'm talking about the, the reality that Jesus broke into the world once upon a time, that he breaks into hopeless and darknesses, hopeless and darkness all the time. That he changes lives here and now. And that's the only hope that these people have, that, that God so loved the world that a really, really long time ago he came as a child, a baby, and that he lived for us, that he bled for us, that he taught us, that he died for us, that he was raised for us. The message of Christmas is inextricably linked to the message of Easter. Those two things are just tied together, that Jesus came in order to die, in order to be raised. It's in the name. He will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. There really is hope in Jesus Christ for the people that we love. Hope that a God would really take their place. Hope that someone would choose to be cursed for them. And that that person isn't us. Now, this is a really important thing. If there are lost people who you love and it's breaking your heart all the time, you cannot save them. You are not the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. It all depends, Paul says in verse 16. Not on human will, right? How much we want it. Not on human effort but on God, who shows mercy. And if we can trust the God who showed mercy to us, if we know that God has changed our lives, and we know how ridiculous that was, how impossible that was, that a terrible human being like me could at some point become a Christian, that is amazing to me that God did that. I can start to believe that for the people in my life. Because there's no one quite so hopeless as me. And so I can look at some of the hopeless situations around me and begin to believe, as Paul believes, that God will show mercy on whom he will show mercy to. That he is not unjust. That he is a good and deep and loving God. And that there really is hope for the people we love if we cling to him. No matter how hopeless it looks, and I know it looks hopeless. There's this lesser known part of the Christmas story that I love. I'll do it on my phone comes the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. It's verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. Looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what was customary under the law. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, you are now dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon's been waiting his whole life to see something incredible, to see that God makes good on his promises, to see that God will actually make good on his hope. 
If God makes a promise to us, he better own up to it. And so Simeon's been waiting and waiting and waiting, and all of a sudden he sees Jesus and he says, I can die happy. Now I can die happy because I have finally seen the consolation of Israel, a light to the Gentiles, he said, the glory of God's people, the Jews. That God loves the world, Jew and Gentile. That God loves the lost, Jew and Gentile. And that God will save the world, this is something we have to place all of our hope in. Simeon got to see it. And I know, I know that if we trust the Lord, he is trustworthy. That he makes good on his promises to people like Simeon, that he makes good on his promises to people like you and people like me. But I also know uh, that there are, are people in this room right now who are thinking, well, yeah, but, you know, there are some people who are judged. And not everybody gets a happy ending at the end of their story. And that's fair. A traditional view of salvation would say something like this. Uh, that unless somebody meets a Christian and hears the gospel from a Christian and accepts the gospel from a Christian, is baptized, takes communion, all this in the church, they cannot be saved. And that is biblical. It's true. And it creates a real urgency for us to talk to people about Jesus. People need to hear about Jesus. They need the gospel. But it also sounds really hard and so it leads a lot of people to want something else, like a better, like a more of a hope. And so they start kind of looking around a little bit outside, actually, of what we would talk about when we talk about Jesus, um, to things like universalism. Uh, universalism is something that um, I won't have a lot of time to explain, um, and that's because we only have so much time. But essentially the idea is everyone will be saved, because God loves people so much that everyone will be saved. And it's a really, I think there's a good kind of instinct behind it, um, ultimately, I'd say it's thoroughly flawed. One of many issues um, with universalism is that if everyone will be saved, then functionally no one will be saved because there was never a threat to begin with. There's no danger. There's no such thing as hopelessness or as despair, functionally. One of many issues. But at the end of the day, I can tell you this. If you want to follow Jesus and be a Christian, you cannot believe in universalism. And that's not me being a jerk or creating rules. Um, that's just the definition of a word. Right? You can't be a married man and a bachelor not possible. You're one or the other, but you can't be both. You cannot be a universalist and a Christian. Those two things, do, they just don't go together. But does that mean that we're stuck with a really traditional thing? Does that mean that at some level we, it almost creates a kind of hopelessness, I think? Well, the truth is, there are stories in the Bible of, of God's Spirit going where it wants, or the Spirit blows where it wills. There are moments when Moses meets God in a burning bush. God does something dramatic and amazing where Paul gets knocked blind on the road to Damascus, where God does amazing and weird things outside of maybe what we would say is normal. And I hear stories, actually, that still happen today. And one of my favorites is a friend of mine who's a missionary in the Middle East and told me a story about a Muslim man that he met who was in a very remote area where there were no Christians. And he kept having dreams. He kept having dreams about falling into a river full of crocodiles. And a hand would grab him. And he'd hear a voice. Those whom I take hold of, I don't quickly let go of. He'd wake up, kept having the dream over and over again. One day he said, I, I really want to be in the hand. I'm like, I want to stay. He was like looking forward to the dream. And that night instead he got directions to get on a bus, travel three hours to a particular town, walk into a particular store so that there would be Arabic word for Bible. 
super weird. He wakes up, doesn't tell his wife what he's doing because it sounds crazy. Gets on a bus, travels to a particular town three hours away, walks into the town, looks for the store, finds the store, walks inside. Woman behind the counter sees him, looking confused, immediately says, I have something for you, and hands him a bag. He walks out of the store, opens it, there's a Bible inside. Guy reads the Bible, becomes a Christian, leads his family to Jesus. He's a missionary now. It's incredible. It's a crazy story. God does amazing things. No Christian was involved in that story. Now again, would we say that's normal? But do I really want to say that I'm pessimistic about the salvation of others? Pessimistic about God's grace? No. I'm going to say that I'm optimistic. That I have a great deal of hope that God can do amazing things. And that I still need to tell a lot of people about Jesus. And that I'm not going to give up loving the people in my life. But I know that ultimately it does not depend on human effort or will, but on God who shows mercy. Pope Francis, who's an interesting cat, wrote a book called The Name of God is Mercy. It's an incredible title for a book. The book's a little weird, but it's an incredible title for a book. And at one point he talks about the church. He says, the mission of the church is not a message of condemnation. It's to create a visceral encounter with the God who shows mercy. Our mission is to create a visceral encounter with the God who shows mercy, sometimes in our own persons, just by being people who love the lost so well and who advocate for the lost so well. There's a story I came across in a uh, Christian century this week. It was a short story by Willa Cather, and it's uh, called The Burglar's Christmas. She was talking about um, a young man uh, in the story who destroyed his life. It's a fake story, but destroys his life, um, loses contact with his parents, moves away, makes a lot of really poor choices and loses a lot of the people he loves. And One day he's living in Chicago. He decides to break into a house to solve some of his problems. And the house he breaks into is his parents' house because they've moved to Chicago without him knowing. So he's rooting through their things when his mom comes downstairs. And he's immediately filled with shame and fear. And she's so excited to see him. She runs forward and she tries to hug him and kiss him. She says, oh, my son, we've waited for this day. And he tries to push her away and says, I don't think you understand why you're forgiving. And she keeps trying to hug him. Do you not understand? Have you traveled so far? Have you paid such a bitter price for knowledge that you have forgotten that love is not about pardon or forgiveness? It just loves, loves, loves. That's what we're called to do, to love, to love, to love. To love the lost, painful as that is. Because the closer you get to lost people, the more you go, oh, I can't believe you're doing this to your life. This is so hard to watch. I care about you so much. To love and love and love the lost. Because it changes people. Because somehow in the midst of that, we can create a visceral encounter with the God who shows mercy. And it all depends, not on human will or human effort, but on God who shows mercy. And we have a merciful God. One last story. There's a guy, uh, one of the great saints of the church named Augustine, uh, who talks about his own conversion in a book he wrote called The Confessions. He says, my mom was a really big deal. I'm paraphrasing him a little bit. He wrote a long time. My mom was a really big deal in my story, he says. And she used to pray for me and pray for me and pray for me. My dad wasn't a Christian, and I followed in his footsteps. And it drove my mom crazy. It broke her heart. And she would sleep, and she would have dreams where a young man would come to her and, and talk about how God was going to save her son, and she would argue with the guy, and she would wake up crying. And then one day, um, she went to a priest in town because she just couldn't take it anymore, and the priest had become a Christian later in life. She starts 
asking the priest if, if he will come and unlearn my son all of the nonsense that he's learned. And the priest says, no. Because you can't argue somebody into following Jesus. You just got to keep loving him and praying for him and having him read and hopefully he'll see it. And Augustine would say, that priest was really wise. My mom would not take no for an answer. Just starts arguing with him and crying and arguing and crying and doing everything. She just refusing to take no for an answer. And finally, the priest is really annoyed and he says, go thee on your way. It is impossible that the son of such tears should perish. She took that as a word from God and left. It is impossible that anyone who is loved this much, who is advocated for this much, who someone is on their knees for this much, who cries this much, it is impossible that that person is not going to see the grace and love and mercy of God. It is impossible that they will not somehow come into contact with a God who shows mercy. That's the hope we've got for the people that we love. That it depends not on you or on me, but on the God who shows mercy. Would you pray with me? Now, Lord Jesus, we know that there is a lot of brokenness in this room and a lot of brokenness in our families and our friends. God, it hurts a lot to love people who are lost. It is extraordinarily painful sometimes. And we pray that you would give us more love for the lost. God, if this does not break our heart, that there would be someone in our life that we realize we are called to invite into our home and be with. Or maybe, Lord, that this would just be an encouragement for those of us who've been doing everything we can to love some of the people in our family or love some of our best friends growing up or some of the folks we know have just kind of wandered away and we don't know what to do with. We know that you are a merciful God. We're banking on it. And we pray that you would make good on this hope because we are trusting you. In the name of Jesus, amen.